people are being born in the West Bank without civil rights, like their father and in some cases their grandfather before them. People are born inside Israel's borders, Palestinians who are by law have an inferior status. And there are Palestinians who are born outside of Israel and Palestine in refugee camps across the region who are denied their right to live in the country from which they come from solely because of who they are. That's an intolerable reality. That needs to be addressed today. Welcome to This is Palestine. I'm Deanna Butu. And I am Omar Baddad. And today we're going to discuss a major new report by Human Rights Watch that is making waves by outlining how the Israeli government is committing the crime of apartheid against Palestinians. Our guest will be Omar Shakir, the Israel and Palestine Director at Human Rights Watch. But first, we will discuss the recent violence in Jerusalem as hundreds of right-wing Israeli extremists descended on the city, chanting death to Arabs and attacking innocent Palestinians. When Palestinian youth mounted counter-protests to defend their communities, the Israeli police intervened disproportionately against the Palestinians, arresting and brutalizing protesters in videos widely shared on social media. Diana, obviously you're in Palestine and you know a lot of people in Jerusalem. What's your sense of what has been unfolding in the city for the past couple of weeks? Well, Omar, what we're seeing now is the culmination of years of anti-Palestinian racism that has been put forward officially by the Israeli government. And we're also seeing now that with the recent election, the recent Israeli election, where a number of Kahanas, these are people who openly support the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, we see that these are the individuals who have come forward and have been saying that it's time for them to take back their city. And they are the ones who've been leading these protests and these marches, these death to Arab protests, with absolutely no repercussions by the Israeli police. So this is a combination of anti-Palestinian racism, coupled with the, the recent election of these Kahanas, and of course, longstanding Israeli policy to try to limit Palestinian access to the old city and, and specifically to the religious sites in the old city. We are certainly seeing this overtly racist anti-Palestinian climate growing in an unprecedented way. I mean, it's crazy to think that the Kahanists were once banned from participating in Israeli politics because of their racism and violence, and now we're at a point where they're openly embraced by the Israeli prime minister. We know the foundation of the state is obviously anti-Palestinian, but the extent to which this is now encouraged out in the open is certainly frightening. And Well, um, you know, Omar, the, the rise, the Kahanists were banned in, in 1988 from being in the Knesset, but they never went away. And we've seen that many of the individuals who have been ministers within the Israeli government were people who were pupils of Kahana himself, whether that was Avigdor Lieberman or Yehuda Glick or others. These are people who were followers of Meir Kahane and, and who continued to adopt and view and continue to adopt and hold on to his viewpoints. Um, it's, no, it's not at all surprising that we saw somebody like Avigdor Lieberman come out with an election campaign that said uh, no loyalty, no citizenship, or that we've seen Yehuda Glick be one of the individual, one of the individuals who is part of this 
Temple Mount faithful group that seeks to make sure that there's the reconstruction of the third temple over on the side of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, so this is not at all coincidental. What we've seen, the, the change that has happened is that when they were no longer normalized in, in 88, they went underground and now here they are reappearing and have become totally normalized. They've been cleaned up and they're now considered to be acceptable. And these individuals now have, have parliamentary immunity. And this is why they're the ones who are now pushing for their supporters to make sure that they show um, that who is in charge and that they make sure that we see these, these Jewish supremacy rallies where Palestinians are, are left terrified without any um, support by any of the official government institutions. And this isn't just about random fanatics being emboldened by the government to mob the streets of Jerusalem. This is also happening in the shadow of impending Israeli home evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, and also in the shadow of new restrictions that Israel had placed around Damascus Gate in the old city. Can you give us a little bit more about the context in Jerusalem right now? Yes, definitely. You know, the Israelis have had a long-standing policy of trying to erase Palestinians, and in particular in Jerusalem. And they've done it over the years of, by putting in restrictions to make sure that, that they're not able to exercise uh, their civil and political rights to then doing things like making sure that people don't get the ability to build homes, uh, making sure that families are not able to be to be living in the same place. For example, if you are somebody who is from the West Bank, married to a person who holds Jerusalem ID, uh, these families can't live together. And we've seen that over the years that there's been a real attempt on the part of the Israeli government to kick Palestinians out, to effectively erase them. The demolitions, sorry, the uh, evictions, the takeovers in Sheikh Jarrah are one component of that, as are the restrictions that have been put in place around Damascus Gate. It's all an attempt to try to make life so difficult for Palestinians that we are that we leave or we're forced to leave. And, and so this isn't just a question of these uh, Jewish supremacist fanatics, but of longstanding government policy that aims at trying to reduce or effectively eliminate the number of Palestinians in Jerusalem. And the fact that we've seen that the Trump administration gave into this and rewarded this by moving the embassy illegally from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And the fact that we see that the Biden administration hasn't undone that, it just simply gives Israel the green light to continue to do whatever it is that it wants to do. Obviously, it's an infuriating situation. And we are talking about Israel's universally condemned annexation of East Jerusalem. But last week, there was also a small victory for Palestinian protesters uh, who succeeded to get the Israeli authorities to remove some of the barricades around Damascus Gate, which was a point of contention where Palestinians could not gather. But we also know that Israel's celebration of Jerusalem Day is coming up. And that's typically when there is a lot of violence directed at Palestinians in the city. What's the climate right now, and what do you expect for the near future? I suspect that we haven't seen the end of these um, the, this rampage through the through the streets of Jerusalem on the part of these Jewish uh, supremacist fanatics. I, I don't think that it's over. Uh, this on May the 9th will be the the commemoration of the occupation. And uh, you know, rather than it being a time where Israeli citizens are looking inward and saying to themselves, 
we've now been occupying this territory for quite some time. We've been denying freedom for more than half a century to generations of Palestinians. We are continuing to subjugate another people. We've created an apartheid regime. Instead, Jerusalem Day is a big celebration. It's a, it's a big party. It's a big street party. And we usually see that uh, these right-wing Israelis are not only, not only descend upon occupied East Jerusalem and the old city in particular, but that they're bust in uh, by, so oftentimes by schools and by government institutions. So we end up seeing that, that shopkeepers are terrorized. Women um, get, I've seen, I've seen it personally where, where women have had their hijabs uh, been forced off of them by, by these young, um, by these young, young Israelis. I've seen many times where where uh, shops have been, where they've stolen goods from, from Palestinian shops, where Israelis have stolen goods from Palestinian shops. I've witnessed how they've spat in the face of, of Palestinian uh, shopkeepers. I've witnessed how these, how these youth have tried to instigate fights. I've seen them hit Palestinians. All with the all under the cover, under the watchful eyes of the Israeli police, who do who do absolutely nothing to protect Palestinians. So I think that this latest, the the there might have been one a closure of one element of it, which is the removal of the barricades. But I don't think that we're going to at any time in the near future see the end of these types of. Of, uh, of marches, these death to Arab marches. In fact, I, given, the, given who's in the Knesset now, given that we see these Kahanas in the Knesset now, they've now been emboldened. And I fully expect that we're going to see more of these death to Arab marches rather than fewer of them. Thank you, Diana. Obviously, this is a deeply concerning situation that we're keeping our eyes on, but this has been very informative. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now we'll turn to Diana's conversation with Omar Shakir, the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, to talk about the organization's groundbreaking report on Israeli apartheid that they just released last week. So welcome, Omar Shakir. Welcome to This is Palestine. Thank you for having me, Diana. So Omar, you've come out with this report, this 213-page report, quite a huge report, about apartheid. And... So I wanted to ask you a few questions. For many, many years, Palestinians have been making similar claims that Israel is an apartheid state. And in the past few months, we've also seen human rights organizations, including B'Tselem, coming out and making the same or similar determinations. What for you has changed, or what for Human Rights Watch has changed, why now? Thank you, Deanna, for that question. Human Rights Watch does not make determinations around crimes against humanity lightly. And while certainly many of the abuses documented in the report go back many years, there was at least some question for much of recent decades regarding whether or not there was an intent by Israeli officials to dominate, which is one of the three elements necessary for the crime of apartheid. For much of the 1990s and 2000s, you know, there was a sense, I think, among many, that there may be a political solution that could end the serious repression faced by Palestinians. Um, recent years have removed any doubt, though, about the intent of Israeli officials to dominate Palestinians for the benefit of Jewish Israelis. Several key developments in particular come to mind. 
One is while Israeli officials for years said in Israeli courts uh, and publicly that um, settlements and the occupation uh, were temporary, in recent years they've removed that fig leaf and they've directly said that they intend to rule in perpetuity with Palestinians as subjects. Secondly, the massive expansion of settlements, land grabs, as well as the infrastructure connecting settlements with Israel proper. The third is the Jewish nation state law. And of course, while the law merely codified what's on the ground been the discriminatory reality for a number of years, enshrining as a constitutional principle that certain rights only belong to one of the two groups on the ground adds sort of a different weight um, to it. So when we put all the evidence together, and we also in this report tried to connect the dots. We had done research for years looking at the treatment of Palestinians in particular areas or particular phenomena. But when we started to connect the dots and then we applied this law that exists, it became overwhelmingly clear that apartheid is not some future or hypothetical scenario. It is the reality for millions of Palestinians. We're conscious we're not the first organization to make this determination, and we certainly won't be the last. And we know Palestinians have described their lived experience as apartheid for years and indeed for decades. We hope that this report will contribute to the growing recognition of the commissions of these crimes and ultimately to ending them. You know, Ahmed, in the report, Human Rights Watch comes out with some very strong recommendations for Israel, for the Palestinian Authority, and for the international community. Can you speak to some of these recommendations? Why were they put in there, and why specifically the Palestinian Authority? Human Rights Watch's recommendations in this report stem from how we approach situations of crimes against humanity across the globe. The recommendations are aimed at ending complicity in the underlying crime. We have several main recommendations, but they all sort of flow from that main principle. Um, they include that the ICC should investigate and prosecute those Israeli officials implicated uh, in the crime, as well as national courts to do so under the principle of universal jurisdiction. We call for targeted sanctions, including asset freezes and travel bans on the Israeli officials implicated in the crimes, a conditioning of all military and security assistance and arms sales to Israel on taking steps to end the crime. The recommendations to the Palestinian Authority is consistent with our recommendation to all governments, which is to vet and evaluate all forms bilateral, multilateral agreements and engagement with Israel to ensure non-complicity in the crime and to mitigate human rights impacts uh, where possible and where not possible to end those activities. In terms of um, the, uh, uh, to get to that point, we, we are clear that step one to move towards adopting these sorts of human rights tools are to acknowledge the reality on the ground, you know, for what it is. For too long, the international community has, you know, treated human rights abuse, serious human rights abuse as a symptom of the problem, as opposed to the core issue. And that has led them to not take the sorts of human rights measures that a situation of this gravity warrant. So many of our initial recommendations focus on getting us to a place where these sorts of human rights-based recommendations can take place. Things like you know, statements to that effect, a UN commission of inquiry, a UN global envoy for the crimes of apartheid and persecution. So these steps we hope will lead to a place where we can finally get to accountability to end impunity and ultimately human rights measures um, that ensure protection of human rights for all people living in Israel and Palestine.
But given the political reality, do you expect to see action? We certainly don't expect apartheid to end overnight. Uh, you know, it's quite clear that we're dealing here with a very uh, sophisticated machinery of repression um, aimed at privileging one people at the expense of another, depriving millions of Palestinians of their fundamental rights solely of who they are. So we understand that this is a process that will take, you know, some time. Um, and to that extent, I think uh, we're really focused at this point in terms of helping to kind of grow the chorus of voices that um, call a spade a spade, that speak to the reality, you know, for what it is. We feel like that sort of paradigm shift um, and sort of grounding um, that determination on the facts and the law, as we try to do in this report, is critically important. And I think we've seen um, as you noted, um, growing recognition in recent months and years. Um, and I think it's necessary um, for uh, groups that have used um, apartheid as a future or hypothetical scenario to understand that that is the reality today. And to that extent, we've already, in the short time since we released the report, um, seen serious engagement by a range of stakeholders. We've briefed a number of governments, including governments uh, that are not uh, predisposed to be very critical of Israeli government's practices. And we've seen serious, um, you know, conversation engagement. We hope that continues. Uh, and we hope that that will ultimately lead to a situation where the international community can bring to bear, um, you know, human rights tools to, to end this ugly uh, status quo. In building upon that, Ahmad, what has been the reaction by these, these individuals that you've reached out to, particularly lawmakers, for example, in the United States and in other places around the world? You know, I have to say that most of the folks that we've spoken to have not had disagreements on the merits. Few have come and told us, well, we sort of disagree that that's the analysis of the situation. There have been some thoughtful questions um, about our determination, but I think much of the conversation has really focused on you know, what, where are you going with this? How, you know, how do we get there? Um, you know, how do you deal with concerns A, B, and C? It's more about how do we sort of turn, um, you know, this damning factual assessment and legal determination into something that can concretely um, change dynamics on the ground. But I have to say, again, that even actors you wouldn't suspect uh, to be receptive to this finding, you know, most of them say, look, we're not gonna use the term uh, or, you know, we're not going to describe things in that way, but, you know, we're clear eyed about uh, what the reality is on the ground and the need to move forward. And much of that conversation is focused on the latter. I wonder if you can speak to the, the various members of Congress who have, who have welcomed this report. Absolutely. I mean, look, in the lead up to our release, we, um, you know, had a number of off the record conversations with key voices in different countries across the world. And now that the report is public, we certainly hope um, not only to engage with those um, members of Congress and uh, legislators and other um, officials and policymakers and countries that have embraced this findings, but to also expand beyond those and to hope to build, um, you know, constituencies and support among um, folks that have not yet um, sort of embraced this sort of um, analysis. And I think there are some positive indications um, already in the kind of initial hours since since the release that there may be um, you know room I think to really build on this report this isn't uh, a report that's going to be released and then um, sort of be forgotten this is very much going to be something that frames human rights watch's research and advocacy agenda for months and years to come and we hope to continue to 
um, you know, to uh, engage in conversation um, with those uh, in Europe and the United States uh, and the global south and other parts of the world who um, have a sense that, you know, what's going on can't be simply described as a temporary or, um, you know, a temporary situation or a case of isolated abuse, but rather as a case of systemic repression. And we hope that we can um, help shift perceptions and, and move towards better rights protection. And finally, Aman, how can people build upon the work of Human Rights Watch and the work they've done in this area? I think Human Rights Watch very much sees ourselves as, you know, building on the work that so many others, um, you know, have done, human rights organizations and others. And, uh, and I do think there really is a coalescing um, among, you know, many of those concerned about human rights um, on the ground today with a similar assessment of what that factual reality is on the ground. Of course, many groups conduct, I mean, we all conducted analyses independently. There are differences uh, and our approaches, but I think it speaks to the growing recognition of these crimes. So I really think the challenge incumbent upon all of us uh, that have this assessment now is to continue to engage um, with stakeholders uh, around the world, in Israel and Palestine as well, to lay out the facts, um, explain you know, why uh, this is the most accurate um, description of the reality on the ground, and most importantly, beyond what you call it, why there's a need for us to anchor the conversation on the situation today, not some you know, future peace agreement. For too long, human rights have been considered um, you know, as something that will be addressed once we have a political solution, but a political solution is not around the corner. And while we all hope there is one, we can't continue to live in a reality where millions of Palestinians live without their fundamental rights because of who they are. People today are being born in Gaza without the right to free movement outside of narrow humanitarian exceptions. People are being born in the West Bank without civil rights, like their father and in some cases their grandfather before them. People are born inside Israel's borders, Palestinians who are by law have an inferior status. And there are Palestinians who are born outside of Israel and Palestine in refugee camps across the region who are denied their right to live in the country from which they come from solely because of who they are. That's an intolerable reality. That needs to be addressed today, not pending some political um, solution that may or may not come anytime soon. And that's where we hope we can shift the conversation. Well, thank you very much, Omar, for this interview. Thank you most especially for the report and for all of the hard work that you continue to do on the issue of Palestine. Thank you once again. Thank you, Deanna. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to This is Palestine, a podcast brought to you by the Institute for Middle East Understanding. The IMEU is a nonprofit focused on giving you access to untold stories, facts, and expert sources on all things Palestine. For more information, please visit our website at www.imeu.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the IMEU. Please don't forget to subscribe. I'm Deanna Butu. Thanks for listening.